0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Welcome, 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 welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Mr. How do you have any doubt about the authenticity of the report from China dating to 2015 titled The Unnatural Origin of SARS and New Species of Man-Made Viruses as Genetic Bioweapons? which was obtained by the United States Department State Department and fundamentally declaring the People's Republic of China has since 2015 been working on, at the very least, the theory that bioweapons, including coronaviruses, will serve as the, quote, core weapon for victory in any World War III scenario.
2: I, I wish I did. Sadly, the authentication uh, seems to be uh, very clear. The United States Department of Defense and indeed Australian Academics have already looked at it, and it seems very sadly to be uh, a a very reliable source. What exactly it means, as in uh, how much of this has actually been picked up uh, by the Chinese authorities, by the Beijing authorities, and how much of this is just speculation by scientists is, of course, hard to say. Uh, And we must hope that it's mere speculation, but it's still concerning.
0: It is also concerning, is it not, that uh, the report was written, at least in part, by members of the People's Liberation Army.
2: Well, that's not entirely surprising, as many, many people are drafted into the People's Liberation Army in various different ways. Uh, but you're absolutely right. The militarization of, of, uh, uh, of bioweapons like this is would be extremely concerning if it were to become a mainstream activity.
0: The uh, concern about the PRC developing bioweapons can be found online. I just went online this morning. Back in 2009, there was concern and uh, detailing supposed interest by China. In the military potential of the SARS coronavirus, which struck Canada and particularly Ontario, where I'm broadcasting from, is this something you're also considering at the Foreign Affairs Committee that it has been on in the news and been, on, uh, been talked about and discussed for years?
2: Well, it's something that we are increasingly aware of. And so we're going to have to think about how we respond and how we look at it, because the, the, the challenge to all of us uh, were a power to be interested in bioweapons would not be just... Uh, that it would be a threat to us as a weapon to be used against us, but actually it would be a threat to the whole of humanity. Uh, As we know, one of the reasons why bioweapons are so constrained by international agreement is because of the potential for them to be accidentally used, for them to leak out, for them to uh, get out of the protective custody that they're supposed to be in and spread disease.
0: Does the virology lab in the city of Wuhan, where COVID-19 first appeared, concern you at all?
2: Well, it's clear that it should concern all of us because it appears that it may have been. And of course, the Chinese authorities have not allowed the WHO uh, scientists to investigate, which is uh, again a matter of grave concern. Uh, but it may have been the point of origin for this latest, for this, uh, for this global outbreak. And the objective of these bioweapons,
0: as I understand it from the report from the U.S. State Department, would be to cripple an opponent's healthcare system. Is
2: that correct? Well, that's what this report suggests. But as we say, as, as we must recognise, this is a speculative report and this is not uh, a, a strategy document. And so we must we must be cautious about reading too much into it, except to say that anybody who's thinking about uh, using bioweapons in this way, in, in, in effect intended to injure rather than kill, uh, is a very sophisticated uh, military strategist attempting to dis- disable uh, an enemy.
0: Is it known or suspected that the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, was or is conducting biological warfare, warfare experimentation at the Wuhan Virology Institute?
2: I don't know whether that's true or not.
0: What questions do you want answered and what avenues is the British government examining at the Foreign Affairs Committee?
2: Well, as you know, the, the Foreign Affairs Committee isn't the branch of the British government, uh, we hold the British government to account. Um, but what the questions we're asking are what is the UK government doing uh, to support partners like Australia, who, as you know, uh, have been calling for the World Health Organization to have access to the Wuhan labs? And what are we doing uh, to support partners around the world, including, of course, Canada, who's, who have two uh, victims of hostage diplomacy in Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig? And so what we're trying to do is to hold... Uh, the UK's, uh, the UK government's uh, principles to account and to make sure that uh, our foreign secretary and our prime minister really does commit to uh, defending uh, Britain's interests. And of course, that means our allied interests uh, by standing up against what we're seeing out of China today.
0: Okay, final question for you. Does the (laughs) State Department document raise international tensions at a time when they're already, it appears, quite high, at least at times?
2: Well, it certainly raises grave concerns. And uh, at a time like now, when many people are indeed concerned about what we're seeing uh, around the world, and particularly, of course, in China, uh, that does, yes, have a danger that it might raise tensions.
0: Mr. Tugendhat, thank you very much for the time. Let's get back to this issue of uh, crossing the border. Well, sort of. We, in the last hour, and it's generated a tremendous amount of interest We talked with the vice president of Leger in Vancouver about the polling that was done about passports, vaccine passports. If you're crossing borders, 82% of Canadians support requiring proof of vaccination for all non-Canadians traveling into Canada. And 79% of Canadians say a vaccine passport should be required for Canadians to travel between provinces or outside of Canada. What you can do with those numbers as well is look at them this way. It says a vast majority of Canadians are interested in travel. That's another way of looking at it. So when we come to the border, when it comes to the issue of crossing the border, the issue of the land borders between Canada and the United States has been in the forefront for over a year now as border crossing has been very limited, essential traffic essentially only. So where do we stand? Where should we be? Chuck Schumer, who's the leader of the Democrats in the U.S. Senate, majority leader, was at the Niagara Falls border crossing last weekend, urging that the border be opened between the land border be opened between Canada and the United States. We're joined by the two mayors of Niagara Falls, Niagara Falls, Ontario. Jim Diodati joins us. Mayor Diodati, good to have you with us. Uh, thanks for having me. And from Niagara Falls, New York, Mayor Robert Restaino. Mayor Restaino, good to have you with us, sir. Good to be here. Mayor Diodati, let me start with you. Are you in favor of opening the land border at this time? And if not now, when?
3: Well, I'll tell you, my number one priority is to know where the target is. And this is what I've been saying to our counterparts
0: uh, at the federal
3: level. Show us the target. Where are the benchmarks? Where's the metrics? um, Help us understand how we're making the decision seems every month we kick the can further down the road and they say no not yet we'll talk about it in a month but we don't know what they're looking for we're not sure where the mark is and how do you know if you're going to hit the target if you don't know where the target is so we look at what's happening south of the border our friends in the u.s i look at what's happening in the uk and other places around the world and i'm wondering how do we get to that stage share with us the metrics so that we can all get there together
0: Yeah, when we look at numbers from the United States on vaccination, I'm looking at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention numbers that I found this morning. They are from yesterday, but they were on their website this morning. You have 121,768,268 Americans fully vaccinated. In this country, we have about 1.4 million Canadians vaccinated. About 18 million vaccines have been issued. But at the same time, we also know now from a survey or at least a study that was done, that efficacy for vaccines for the mRNA vaccine after 12 weeks is still over 90%, if you believe in that particular study. So if we look at those numbers, uh, Mayor Diodati, those are encouraging, but do I hear you correctly saying that there's no communication or very little communication between federal authorities and yourself?
3: Well, we've been having uh, border city mayors meeting with Minister Blair uh, virtually, and we've expressed our concerns. We've shared our view. Um, We understand that essential workers are allowed to cross. And what people need to understand is commercial uh, trade is up to pre-pandemic levels. Those are full out. And we still have in Ontario, we have 100,000 crossings per week. So there are people crossing. What we're suggesting is how can we look at expanding that essential list? For example, as you mentioned earlier, the idea of a vaccine passport, If we can prove we've been fully vaccinated, why shouldn't we build a cross? And the argument I've used is even in the past, when I would bring my dog into the U.S., I had to show his papers to show that he had his rabies vaccination. And I've traveled to other countries where I had to get vaccinations. I had to prove it. I don't have a problem with that, certainly in the short term. If that's what it takes, and I know it's going to be a gradual opening, a dimmer switch approach, not a light switch. If that's what it's going to take to start letting some light into that border, I'm all for it. Niagara Falls, Canada. We're the number one leisure destination in Canada. Upwards of 14 million people come here every year, and 25% of those come from the U.S., and they represent 50% of the revenue. You've got a population so heavily dependent on tourism. We need to look at all the ways that we can to safely open up that, that border.
0: All right. Mayor Rustano from Niagara Falls, New York. Mayor Rustano, what's your view of opening the land border? And I'll ask you the same question I asked Mayor Diodati. Is it, do you want it open now? And if not now, when?
1: Well, I think that the most important uh, factor is making sure that we do it smartly and making sure that we do it safely. And so I think the majority leader of Senator Schumer's plan makes sense. We can gradually begin to sort of out the frozen border and make us begin to allow people who are fully vaccinated to travel back and forth. I've often said that more than just in, this, in the area of tourism, uh, our neighbors in the Niagara region, it's like another neighborhood for us. And I know that there are many on this side of the border as well as on in the Canadian side. There are families that have been separated. There's favorite restaurants and favorite stores. So for us, it's really just a part of our um, local economy to open up to our neighbors of the north and us to them. So I think that the senator's idea is is I think that's the recipe and it, you know as mayor Diodati suggested too, it is a dimmer switch approach. We start to introduce more and more people within those categories of acceptable uh, transport between and I know here in New York state we have developed an excelsior path I'm not saying that it's the only technology, but we have that we have that now here where each person who has been fully vaccinated has the ability to show electronically that they have been, and there's a, a scan that you can do with the, uh, uh, the, uh, the the image and determine that you've been fully vaccinated, um, and so you pass forward. Now, I, I would think that certainly that kind of technology can be shared, can be improved, uh, but that's that's an option that allows us to be able to safely uh, go between the two countries. And I think that's something, and I, and I do agree that part of the problem is all we get are sterile announcements of continued closure and no real understanding of okay, are we three quarters down the track? Are we half way down the track? Mm-hmm. When is it? What else do we have to do? And that's really not being disclosed. All
0: right, Mayor Stena, what percentage of your population in Niagara Falls, New York, has been fully vaccinated? You know, I know
1: that I know that in
0: Niagara Falls
1: um, we have think we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 percent of our just plus or minus a, a few points that have been fully vaccinated and county-wide we have 57 percent um and right now what we're doing is we're starting to go into the neighborhoods we're becoming a little bit more mobile mm-hmm. with the uh, vaccine opportunities um so we're going to try to go to where people That's are right. instead of just having them sort of
4: all
1: right, Mayor,
0: into, uh, large yeah, Mayor Diodati, Let's talk about the economic realities. What's the cost? What's the cost been to Niagara Falls, New York, of keeping the border essentially closed for the last year plus? What's it cost you?
3: Well, you know, uh, it's uh, it's devastating, and you know, sometimes we joke we're waiting for the tumbleweed to blow across the street. And when you think about it this way, there are forty thousand people. That's four zero, forty thousand people that count on tourism to put food on the table. And they've all been essentially out of work. And I've had people come to me in tears saying, you know, I appreciate the SERB. It's been uh, uh, like a godsend. I appreciate it, but it's not enough for a family. And I've met these people at the food giveaways and the different events. It's been devastating. We lost most of last season. We can't handle two seasons back to back. And I'll say this, tourism, resilience is part of our DNA. But this, everything else was, a, was just a trickle. This is a tsunami and to bounce back we need to have a plan and if people can at least have a plan they know the target is you can start to build hope and planning because even these people need to they need to um, buy stock and inventory they need to hire people train people people need to build a plan are they going to be able to buy that car are they going to have to sell that car and not knowing sometimes is worse than knowing the bad news i think people as mary stanow says and the other thing we're one big city divided by a border I mean, what happens to one side affects the other, and when I travel, most people don't know there are two Niagara Falls, and we're very, very close, and as Mary Ray Stano said, I've got family all over the U.S., I've got friends, Um, and and living in a border town, it's a way of life, you go over to eat, to go shopping, to go visiting, and and even when I was a kid, you didn't even carry ID until after 9-11, then you carried a passport, and and it's just a way of life for what we do. It's been very disruptive for us. Imagine not being able to go to the city right next to where you live, wherever that is in Canada. Well, that's like what it's like for us, too. It's not just the border. It's the other part of our city.
0: Yeah. Uh, Mayor final final question for you. What's the cost been to the city of Niagara Falls of having the border with Canada essentially closed, the land border closed for over a year now?
1: Well, obviously, uh, we have suffered um, financially. Uh, the estimates in the millions for the loss of revenue. Um, you know, it's caused to have to retool uh, the entire tourism uh, delivery. Um, we've kind of concentrated in the North mid-Atlantic and northeastern states, um, but still, there's a there's a missing piece because of um, our ability to have that continued uh, course of commerce with our, with our Canadian neighbors. So. Um, we're eagerly we're, um, anticipating their return. Uh, they can't open the border. The, the federal government symbol says can't open the border fast enough. To
0: My three guests now are always reticent to express their points of view until they come on this program, and then there's no stopping them. It's time for Beauties and the Beast with Catherine Swift at Working CDNS on Twitter. How are you, Swifty?
5: I'm great, Roy. How are you? It's the first time I've heard called
0: you Swifty.
5: <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's sort of worked out that way. It's so funny, too, because my dad was in the RCAF in the Second World War. I was just thinking about it with your intro there. And everybody called him Swifty. So, yeah, I've been called Swifty, too. And I don't mind. Yeah, I mean, you've been
0: (laughs) been Swifty forever. So it's just the first time I've ever called you that, anyhow.
3: Is it? Well, there you go. It's
0: the first time I've ever said Swifty. Michelle Simpson, former seatmate to the foreheard Justin Trudeau. And during question period in Parliament. You get nostalgic when you hear him, Michelle? When I hear him? Yeah. Oh, well, confused, maybe.
6: But uh, not not necessarily nostalgic. I'm still trying to figure out what a one dope summer means. But anyway, that's another story.
0: Yeah, I I don't know what what that means either. It was, uh, Linda Leatherdale will have the answer to that. Vice <laughs> president of Cambria Canada, former money editor for the Toronto Sun. How are you, Linda?
7: Hey, Roy, doing great, and great to be on the show again.
0: Okay, why don't we start with a uh, couple of issues we want to discuss. Let's start with the vaccine rollout. Now, let me just give you a couple of numbers. From the Center for Disease Control or Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States, they this morning issued numbers that they had yesterday, and they have 121,768,268 Americans who are fully vaccinated. They've had a total of 156 million plus vaccines that have been delivered. In Canada, we're just over 18 million vaccines delivered, about 1.4 million are I have uh, full vaccination. We have the, this is lucky for Justin Trudeau, I think, the study that came out of uh, the UK, which indicates that after 12 weeks, um, after, 12 weeks after your mRNA vaccine, you're still 90% protected. That's one study. So those are the numbers that we're looking at, but he's still talking about the one-dose summer. So since you know Mr. Trudeau personally... <laughs> and know him well, and sat with him many times, as he showed you photographs of himself, which you've told us about. Uh, Talk talk to us about the vaccine rollout, Michelle. How are you assessing it?
6: Well, I suppose I shouldn't complain, because I managed to get my one dose. But uh, all in all, I'm kind of tired of comparing ourselves to people that are doing worse. We are instead of striving to do better, um, we're now in this infighting between the provinces and the federal government. So, all in all, I wouldn't give it necessarily a passing grade, Roy.
0: Okay, Uh, Linda, what about you? How do you assess this vaccine rollout in this country? And we we were we were kind of we were not exactly complimentary toward the United States at the beginning of this pandemic, and now they've just eclipsed us.
7: Well, first of all, like you, Michelle, I have my one, but I have to wait till the summer for the second, it was Pfizer. But here's what intrigues me, you know, you're right. There was a lot of criticism that the United States was not doing it right. Well, I can tell you that Cambria is based out of Minnesota and they made arrangements for every employee to get their vaccines. But more than that, now you've got the governor of Minnesota saying, you don't have to wear a mask anymore. And so I work for a company where everybody's freely doing their, going about their business. And I'm here in Ontario at the second round of a stay at home Um, and wondering when I'm going to get my second shot. And you know, my daughter Sky Roy, thank you. You were so supportive of her during her cancer journey. Well, she's very high risk. She's only getting her first shot tomorrow. Um, I I think we could have done it better. And there's so many mixed messages, and I think that's why there's so much mistrust out there.
0: Uh, Catherine, I spoke yesterday with Brad Sorensen, the president and CEO of uh, Providence Therapeutics, out of Calgary, and they have a vaccine of their own they're developing. They've had their first phase phase one results, and they're very, very promising. But he can't get a call back from the Prime Minister. They were looking for a 150 million dollar loan in order to push forward their 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 development. Uh, nothing back. They've been given some some money from uh, from various programs, but not a lot. It's a very expensive venture. Uh, he is now. St- they're producing uh, what some countries need. Uh, Canada is not interested in what they're producing. And he's thinking of moving, or talked to us yesterday about there's still the possibility, maybe the likelihood, that he's going to move his company out of Canada. We then spoke with Don Gerson, who's the president of NuVax. We have foreign countries who are ready to employ NuVax to to produce vaccines for their countries. No response from the federal government. I say this only because you know the inside workings of government extremely well. How do you assess what's going on as far as the vaccine distribution in Canada is concerned?
5: Well, uh, I... uh, there's been an awful lot. I mean, I've been willing to give all governments a lot of rope on this whole pandemic thing. Because let's face it, the facts seem to change almost every day. Uh, it's It's very much still, there's all kinds of unknowns and so on. But in terms of actually acquiring vaccine, I think the errors of the federal government in Canada have been crystal clear. First of all, they opted for some inexplicable reason to partner only with a Chinese company and that Chinese company stiffed us basically, you know, when, when uh, we were starting to think maybe we'd get some, uh, you know, get some production. It was a joint, it was a joint effort between a Canadian firm in Montreal and a uh, a Chinese company. So, um, and then following that, there was this, again, inexplicable delay in seeking replacement once the Chinese supplier had dropped the ball and probably deliberately, given how highly they think of Canada these days. So, I mean, there, it, it is, there's a lot of facts that show how badly the Trudeau government botched vaccine access. While they were boasting about, oh, we procured, but it turns out procured meant they had something on paper but not in reality. Mm-hmm. But one thing that struck me recently, which I find kind of kind of interesting uh, and pretty hypocritical is a lot of the Trudeau apologists are saying, oh, well now we, we, are, we are giving all these doses per day now and we're, you know, and, and there's a very significant number. And for starters, yes, we are, thank goodness we are. We're, we're seeing a high, you know, daily dose count in, in Canada in general. But that means, A, the provinces are doing a pretty darn good job (laughs) at getting that vaccine into arms. But secondly, we are doing that now because we didn't have the vaccine three months ago, like the U.S. did, like a whole bunch of European countries. And even some third world countries did a way better job than us. So uh, the the facts are very clear. The federal government bought this uh, 100%. Uh, We're playing catch-up now, and I think the thing a lot of people don't really realize from a pure economy standpoint is business opportunities are going elsewhere, Mm -hmm. where things are opening up, where things have been open maybe for a little while. Catherine, I
0: I have to take a break. I have to take a break here. Interesting email from Annette. Just started listening. She writes, question to all these people who don't want the vaccine if they get COVID and are really sick. What do they expect from the healthcare system? Do they want to be bumped to the front of the line, demand to be treated first? A lot of people needing healthcare are currently being bumped for the COVID patients. Interesting point. And when it comes to the passport issue and whether you're going to have to show a passport to cross borders, Steve sends an email. To Roy, people going to need a passport just to get into my car. All right. Back to Catherine Swift um, working at working CDNS. On Twitter at Linda Leatherdale, at L. Leatherdale, Linda Leatherdale, and at Michelle Simpson on Twitter, and that is S I M S O N. Don't throw in the P. Okay, so when it comes to the issue of the federal election, Michelle, let me start again with you. Do you think we're going to have an election um, this year? And how do you expect the election, an election campaign? to be carried out to evolve at a time of great uncertainty like the one we're living in now?
6: I most certainly do think there will be an election this year because things can only get increasingly worse for the Liberal government. The longer this goes on, it, we've seen it that uh, Mr. Trudeau's been dropping slightly in popularity. And so there, I predict there will be an election for sure. And I think it will be a a different type of campaign, no question, that they'll rely, uh, you know, on Zoom and all these other technical things. Uh, That said, I think if we have the election this year, it will likely be the lowest turnout in our history.
0: That's interesting because they're talking about mail-in ballots arriving 24 hours after the deadline. What the hell's the point of a deadline if you're going to say it's okay to send it in after the deadline? <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like having a speed limit saying, well, it's okay if you speed after, you know, at a certain time of the day. It doesn't make much sense. Um, so unorthodox election campaign, more than likely, with the lowest turnout, more than likely, says Michelle Simpson. Full disclosure, my long-term friend, Catherine Swift is a member of the Conservative Party of Canada. Not that that's going to influence your commentary because I know you, you, you're you going to say what's on your mind regardless. Because <laughs> uh, I, I know you. And I've have been in a Thank room God. with you when you've asked questions. <laughs> so what do you think, Catherine, uh, election this well, year? And what's it going to be like?
5: Well, I agree with Michelle. I think there is going to be. But I think something that Canadians should ask themselves is, do we need an election this year? No, we do not. We've got... Lots on our to-do list, uh, getting over this awful pandemic being obviously the most compelling number one issue. There is no reason we need this election except that it's a Justin Trudeau vanity project. That's what it is. He's dying for a majority, although he's behaving like he has one. And because he's been backed up by the NDP, uh, he basically has uh, more or less, you know, had had a majority government and and continually tries to do things, this latest censorship bill, which I know you... So I have to about. I have to
0: ask you this question. I have to interrupt and just ask you this question. When will you know? When will it be time to have an election?
5: Well, I think, I think, like Michelle said, it's only going to get worse. Right now, it would be far too problematic. The summer is always difficult. So I'd have to say fall. But this whole thing about mail-in ballots, if you can line up at Walmart and Costco, you know what? You can go and vote in person. Mail-in ballots have a huge risk of, of uh, corruption and all kinds of problems, Canadians should not accept the notion of mail-in ballots, period.
0: Okay. Linda, when it comes to the election, uh, one of the... Catherine says this isn't the time for an election. I have some thoughts here that if you're in opposition, you would want to put a stop full stop to the initiatives of the Trudeau liberals, if you're in opposition, as quickly as possible. If you're in opposition to what they're doing, why wouldn't you want to, why wouldn't you want to stop them? So do you think there's going to be an election this year? And am I full of salt um, based on what I'm saying here?
7: Okay, right, you know what, first of all, I have to agree with Catherine, do we really, really need it? And yes, the opposition would want to stop whatever he's doing, but we're in a very, un- this is unprecedented, you know, this pandemic. And doesn't matter your political stripe. We've got to be together to try to get, stop this. And I've already mentioned, there's a lot of mistrust. There's so much misinformation, et cetera, et cetera, on this, would we go in the fall? I tend to agree that our economy right now is not that bad, but I worry about so many different things on the front. I mean, this cyber attack, that you just talked about on your show the fact that michigan is taking a stab at our line five and energy is so important to our economy we've got some huge issues that we've got to come together and not to mention china roy you talked about it that stunned me that that this report has come out about china and the third Mm. world war and attacking us
0: well using using bioweapons Exactly,
7: people. but doesn't that make you suspicious about the two Chinese scientists who were kicked out of Winnipeg? It
0: makes oh, me suspicious know? of the whole world and everybody living in it.
7: <laughs> well, exactly. So, therefore, I am saying, do we really need this at this time? I think we've got a lot of work and a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of scary things. Okay, going.
0: Michelle, well, you're, you're the one who sat in the in the, in the benches. I'm going to say government benches. You were in opposition, sitting with our esteemed leader, and and there's no denying the cult of Trudeau. It exists in this country, and it's going to generate a lot of votes for him. There is the cult of Trudeau. But Michelle, when is the right time for an election, particularly at this time in our, you know, in our history?
6: Well, if you're looking at it from Mr. Trudeau's point of view, uh, he would argue now. But I agree, we don't need an election. But it's all about the polls, and about us being the pawns on a chessboard, and we're getting pushed around, and And uh, we're just going to end up going with the flow. And if he was serious about real election, uh, you know, really doing it right, he would have done something about, uh, you know, the fair election laws that he said he was going to introduce, which he never did.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Catherine, in the very few seconds we have left, if you're in opposition, isn't there time for an election whenever you can create the dynamic for an election? Because you want to change what they're doing.
5: Oh, absolutely. But every party's going to pay attention to polls. But yes, I I think I think you're right uh that the election the opposition parties will be chomping at the bit to have an election to see what they can do to to you know basically bring the government down. Okay. But I I just don't think the country is in a situation where we need an election at all. It's kind of a right. political inside baseball thing. Okay.
0: Jason Kenney telling us yesterday, Premier of Alberta, about trying to communicate uh, with the governor of Michigan about this issue. We then tried to set up a phone call and she finally agreed to speak to me by phone uh, last fall, but only on the condition that
1: I not raise (laughs) line five. So I had to find some artfully diplomatic way of instead talking generically about energy security and so forth. And she seemed completely
0: uninterested. I mean, Michigan's economy is totally integrated with Canada's, as you know. So my good friend, long-term friend, more than, well, 30 years, Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy and former liberal member of parliament, you'll appreciate that. (laughs) The premier of Alberta wants to speak to the governor of Michigan about her demand to close line five. And she'll talk to him, Dan, as long as he doesn't bring up line five. Incredible. It's almost
4: as if uh, it's a one-sided story when it comes to those pushing the destruction of our pipelines uh, and those pushing the climate agenda. It's always only one way. You have to accept, uh, you know... (laughs) their channel or the alternative channel, which is the same channel. Uh, I'm sure that the premier is frustrated, but I I too have been frustrated, uh, Roy. I raised this for the past four years. My former work at Gas Buddy allowed me to speak to many of our emergency preparedness officials by state in the US. You saw that uh, develop last weekend with the colonial pipeline shut down. We had to deploy something in my former job uh, known as the outage tracker, to let people know where fuel was. Uh, it wasn't lost on them that Canada was asleep at the switch. And until very recently, we didn't really get much of a a response from the Canadian government. Uh, And it's sad because of course it suggests to me that it's very one-sided again. They're interested in finding cute ways to stop pipelines from being built. Now we have one that's already built and uh, another government is basically taking them at their word and saying, "Look, you don't think much of pipelines. We might as well shut yours down for the same reasons you give for shutting down all the other ones that you don't want built in Canada." So there's the problem.
0: Okay, so let's talk about this uh, issue with Colonial Pipeline and what it uh, what it's done, what it's doing, and and what it portends potentially. What signal does the hacking ransomware attack? on Colonial Pipeline in the United States, send Canada. And you know, as well as everybody else who's been watching what's been going on in the news over the last week or so, uh, the long lines of uh, frustrated motorists trying to get gas up and down the east coast of the United States. What signal has the Colonial situation sent to us?
4: Well, I mean, it's a dress rehearsal what to expect, and that's a temporary circumstance. Almost two weeks ago, I tweeted saying, for line five to close in Canada would have the same effect as closing the colonial pipeline in uh, to the Eastern seaboard in the United States. I had no idea that was going to happen four days later. Nevertheless, I think it's an illustration and a very apt reminder uh, that those who think we can wish away the economy we currently have, uh, the benefits that it gives uh, whether it's to drive for transportation, all of the things Roy that we take for granted are now very much in play and now quite distinctly at risk. And it comes down to a knife's edge decision by a federal court or a state court in the United States. It's out of the hands of Canadians. And so we don't, I think what this says is that we are certainly looking at staring down an economic abyss, but more importantly, we have no backup plan, and I don't care what anyone wants to say. You can't bring ships onto the Great Lakes. You can't, as uh, Premier Kenny suggested, put 2,500 trucks on the road or try to rail. It would create economic dislocation on a proportion that this country has never seen, even in the Second World
0: So the Washington Post, and I'm going to be speaking with David Fraser right after I speak with you, internet security lawyer lawyer and uh, McInnes Cooper, about this situation of the hack. But Washington Post reported, let me just read you this, a cybersecurity expert warned U.S. lawmakers last week that the world was on the cusp of a, quote, pandemic of a different variety, end quote. Christopher Krebs, who formerly head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency in the Department of Homeland Security, testified last Wednesday before the House Committee on Homeland Security that a form of malware called ransomware has become more prevalent than ever before. Given an ever-widening criminal enterprise and vulnerable digital landscape, he said critical infrastructure is at risk of debilitating attacks. Two days later, Colonial Pipeline shut down. Two days later... Amazing. And I understand
4: Wall Street Journal is next. Uh, so look, uh, this is now uh, reality is becoming uh, in front of us. It is now in front of all of us. We have to accept that these things could happen. When we did a number of the emergency preparedness uh, scenarios, one, of course, was cyber hacks. The other one, of course, was solar flares. But what would knock out our entire infrastructure? And it doesn't doesn't no matter if it's energy or groceries or banking, uh, we are in a very, very serious problem. We, we, we are going to have to understand uh, that society will not be able to function quite the way it did. And perhaps the old ways aren't necessarily the bad ways.
0: So what would the result be, based on your studies and your knowledge of the industry and the availability of fuel and energy, what would the result be if we were to, in this country, face a colonial pipeline um, ransomware hack?
4: Uh, so let's say Line 5 were to shut down. whether yeah. Gretchen Whitmer wants it or it happens by other means. Okay. Uh, you would lose about 60% of all your fuel. You would uh, effectively stop uh, any uh, transportation by rain, uh, train, plane, automobile. You would have to stop factories. Uh, and I'm not just talking about electricity, but propane. Think of the electrical grid would also be affected to, to a large extent. It's very difficult to calculate. But I would guess that if we think the lockdowns of this pandemic... Uh, that we're seeing in many provinces or have experienced uh, is uh, is something to behold. You ain't seen nothing yet. This would mean a cataclysmic shutdown of the Canadian economy as we know it, or other economies as well. It has to be taken very seriously. And I, I dare to think uh, perhaps uh, maybe those in Ottawa who are too busy planning, uh, you know, the great reset and uh, climate emergencies can also deal about the real emergency at hand. That's not just the energy health emergency, but of course uh, the, the potential for a hack of that nature and of that magnitude.
0: Let me ask you to put on your politician's hat. You haven't worn it for a while, but let me ask oh, you to put it on thank again. Thank goodness. 18 years, you were a member of the Liberal Caucus in both the Chrétien and the, and the Martin uh, governments, and you were very close to Mr. Martin. So uh, you would understand what was likely to happen now, Dan, after the colonial pipeline issue and given the machinations by the governor of Michigan to shut down Line 5, looking at what happened along the seaboard eastern seaboard in the united states over the last number of days do you think and given the fact that uh, you know there's warnings now about more ransomware attacks more malware attacks do you think it's more likely that a cooperative stance will be arrived at by both washington and ottawa to make sure that our energy supply as much as possible and let's specifically talk about oil uh, do you do you think it's some sort of cooperative agreement arrangement is going to be put in place that we don't have now? I think uh, a
4: wake-up call has now uh, been uh, been rung, and I think even the Biden administration's gung ho attitude towards uh, green energy at all costs has suffered a serious uh, and and perhaps a uh, you know a, a silver lining uh, setback. And that is that I think both countries now realize energy security has to be paramount. And it's not just in terms of affordability, we can talk about that, but the availability, the reliability, uh, the very thing on which we rely as a society is our energy infrastructure. And I think uh, it is uh, very much a a telling point. And you don't have to take my word for it. Your next guest will probably uh, make reference to Pete Buttigieg, the transport uh, secretary under Biden, who was a big gung-ho anti-pipeline guy, made no mistake. he always said, we should shut down lines like line five and other environmental uh, crusaders now completely convinced that pipelines is the only reliable viable way to go and so for that reason i think the united states and canada may want to revisit keystone xl canada should definitely revisit energy east by the way that's a pipeline that exists Alberta, all the way to Ontario, if we were in the process of converting that back to an oil pipeline from where it is now, it's a natural gas pipeline, mm. we might be talking about the ability to uh, at least uh, cushion some of these okay. uh, potential disasters. I'm going to tell you
0: this really quickly. When I was living in Quebec between 2007 and 2016, I would go across the border. I live close to the Vermont border, so I'd drive across the border to fill up my truck there because I would, you know, it was like 275 a gallon versus Close to $6 a gallon, right, by comparison. (laughs) But here's the situation, Dan. The gasoline that I put in my truck in Vermont came from Montreal. It was refined in Montreal. The oil company, the gas company, the, uh, the energy company sent their trucks from Vermont to Montreal to buy the gasoline. There at their wholesale yeah. price, then they trucked it all the way back to Vermont. Then yeah. they distributed it among gas stations in the state of Vermont, and they were still able to sell me my gasoline at three bucks a gallon less than <laughs> than the person who who bought it in the gas station beside the refinery in Montreal paid for it. That, that was the reality. <laughs> That's the insanity of it. Well,
4: you'd imagine, uh, the, you know, fifth. 55 cents on a liter of gasoline is tax. So what does that work out to times 3.7541? Yeah. So you're, yeah, I can see why. And uh, taxes make the difference.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.